everybody. Welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. We've got one new case out this week, unanimous decision, authored by Justice Fernandez Vina. Frankly, not the most exciting topic that I've ever discussed, but let me try to spice it up with a little jingle. That is my whistle version of the PC Richard and Sons jingle that has played on the radio for decades. The case is Baskin v. PC Richards. It is a FACTA case, Federal Fair and Accurate Credit Act case. In a nutshell, Baskin went to PC Richards, made a purchase on a credit card, and received back a printed receipt that had the expiration date of the credit card on the printed receipt. Remember a bunch of years ago when all of a sudden the credit card receipts stopped having all of your vital information so that the dumpster divers couldn't get your credit card information, steal your credit, steal your ID, etc. Apparently, PC Richards credit card people had not yet gotten the memo and the receipt had the expiration date. Not the credit card number, but the expiration date on the receipt. Nothing happened to Baskin. In fact, Baskin did not have credit problems. There's no evidence that there was anything except that Baskin suffered an increased risk of exposure to identity theft. So those are the alleged damages. The trial court doesn't buy it, the appellate division doesn't buy it, and the Supreme Court sort of buys it. So there are three big things about this case that make it, that get it to the Supreme Court. First of all, it is a class action lawsuit. So all of the action here is on whether the plaintiffs make it through a motion to dismiss. So that's the big issue. Second, whether there is a sufficient class and in that the court analyzed the three factors that go into determining whether class treatment is appropriate for a case, i.e. a case that has likely a high volume of litigants for low dollar disputes. So the three biggies are numerosity, preponderance, and superiority. The court found, the Supreme Court now found all three. Numerosity, that there could be and likely would be loads of people that got a receipt from P.C. Richards that had inappropriate stuff under FACTA on the printed receipt. And let me just say this. This never happens now. This is going back to 2013 when the FACTA law came in and in the years uh, following thereafter. So this happened years ago. Look at your credit card receipts, even if you even get them printed out. I never would. I think there's no point to it. You can get it on email. Anyway, you're not going to see really anything that identifies your credit card, et cetera, exposing you to credit theft and identity theft. The next factor is predominance, that the group would 
be sufficiently cohesive such that in litigating the case and adjudicating the case, everyone would be arguing the same thing and utilizing the same basic facts. So the Supreme Court finds predominance and hotly litigated below was the idea of superiority. That is, if someone had their identity stolen or had their credit exposed and suffered actual damages, they have a remedy. They could go to special civil part or small claims or even law division if they had actual damages to prove. The court found that the class appears to meet the requirement of superiority. I'm stumbling over my words because although the court finds numerosity, predominance, and superiority, the three keys to enabling a class to go forward, the court did not find that the class led by Baskin should be certified. Instead, the court sends the case back to the trial court for a hearing on whether class certification should be granted. So in finding numerosity, predominance, and superiority, all the court found was there was enough there for the plaintiffs to survive a motion to dismiss. So very interesting, kind of twisted uh, way to get to a conclusion, in my humble view, and really, to me, a question, how is anyone going to prove any, any damages if no one actually had their identity stolen by a dumpster diver, someone finding a stray receipt in recent years? Time was? Absolutely. He went to a restaurant, a crooked member of the staff got hold of one of those receipts, gave it to their friend, next thing you know, they're ordering stuff before you even drive home. Your credit card is lighting up. Sure, that used to happen. Absolutely. Restaurants were a big place where dumpster diving was appropriate. Now, the dumpster divers are international hackers that are hacking communications that you make through email, through communications with your banks, through your credit cards, etc., non-secure internet links. No one's dumpster diving. No one's taking receipts out of the garbage to find your identification and to steal it. So, again, I also wonder you know, how this really helps the legal landscape when it's sort of a dead issue. In other words, I don't imagine there are any credit card terminals in operation in the United States right now that print out the wrong stuff. The credit card companies know better, and the vendors that provide point-of-sale service all know not to have any identifying information like that print out on the card. Indeed, funny, the system that we're using, LawPay, really, they give the person a receipt that, that can even not have their name on it. Just like you're writing out a receipt, someone made a payment, you put dollar sign, you put the amount, you give it to them, you give them a date, that's it. So you can have such a little amount of information on the receipt, and of course, the person can cross-reference that transaction with their own credit card statements, and voila. So there you go, kind of an oddball case from my perspective. I don't think there's an enormous amount of money at stake. No one's liberty is really at stake, but the court took the case and sent it back down. So if you've got an old receipt, 
from probably five years ago or more from PC Richards, you can take a look and maybe you can get a dollar or two for your trouble. So that's it on the cases. I'm working on getting some more interviewees to help us. That's my favorite thing. Uh, but uh, COVID being what it is, uh, things are going slowly. Also, I want to just let you know that the court has 60 cases that have been posted. In other words, posted, first they're certified, certification of the case, then posting of the case. And that gets the clock going for the briefing schedule. The posting date starts the briefing schedule. So there are 60 cases hanging out there. Some have been argued, about half have been argued, half not. About half are state V cases, so criminal cases. So the court has a lot of cases out there. The court generally gets 70, 80 cases dropped into an opinion during the course of the year. And notwithstanding COVID, the court is moving right along and moving a lot of cases, entering orders, etc. So I hope you enjoyed this kind of quick one case show. Again, please reach out to me if you've got a case that's in the court, headed for the court, just been to the court, you've been a law clerk, you've been a staff member, you've been a justice, you know any of those folks who might want to come and talk about the hows and whys of the operation of the New Jersey Supreme Court, it would be my absolute pleasure to talk about that with them. When I've got no cases and I've got no guests, I'll be talking about our Chief Justices. I've already talked a lot about Chief Justice Vanderbilt. I'm reading a book by Professor John Weffing regarding Richard Hughes, the only lawyer governor and chief justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court, who, of course, has the Hughes Justice Complex in Trenton named after him, as well as the law center operated by the Bar Association has his statue outside. So he's a huge figure in politics and law in New Jersey, and I'll be talking about him when I don't have a lot of cases and, and uh, folks to interview. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening in. Please give us a five-star review and uh, let us know if you want to participate in the bold sidebar. Thanks.